This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Hello, and welcome to our second signature event hosted in honor of Geisel Library's 50th anniversary. I'm Eric Mitchell, the Audrey Geisel University Librarian at the UC San Diego Library, and I'd like to welcome back everyone who joined us for our kickoff event in September, a conversation with best-selling author Tara Westover. I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to those joining us today for the first time. Our year-long 50th anniversary celebration would not be possible without our generous sponsors whose support helps us create new research and learning opportunities for UC San Diego students through world-class information resources and services. Thank you to all of our donors and sponsors, and please let me extend a special thanks to Honorary Chair and Bibliophile Sponsor Gene Jones and Bibliophile Sponsors Sally Wong-Avery and Joan and Erwin Jacobs. Today we explore the history and masterful architecture of UC San Diego's flagship building, Geisel Library. The iconic architecture of Geisel fascinates and captures the imaginations of all who encounter it, and today's panel of experts will explore the context and meaning behind the building and help us understand how its design influences our campus and community. I'm so excited to hear from them. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and thank the American Institute of Architects San Diego for recently presenting the Legacy Award to Geisel Library at the 2020 Design Awards Program. This specific category recognizes architectural projects that have stood the test of time for more than 25 years and shines a spotlight on structures that have become embedded into the culture and history of San Diego. We're honored to receive this award, especially during this building's Jubilee year. Now, to get us started, it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator for tonight's discussion, the UC San Diego's longtime director of special collections and archives, Linda Klassen. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be part of this event. And although I started my professional life as an art and architectural historian, the chief qualification for my inclusion in tonight's program may be that I've inhabited this building for more than 30 years, primarily helping to build our magnificent collections, but also experiencing the many changes the library has undergone over these decades. So we'll start with a very brief history of our building. In early 1970, the headline in a San Diego newspaper declared, Unique Library Taking Shape. The headline, of course, referred to the striking campus building, now Geisel Library, which was nearing completion. After years of planning and lobbying for funding, ground had been broken on July 1, 1968. Two years later, 750,000 books began to be moved into the building, and by September 1970, students were able to use the newly opened library. On March 21, 1971, the new Central University Library was dedicated following a weekend in which the university invited San Diego city and county residents to visit and to explore. William L. Pereira, a well-connected and well-known Southern California architect and planner, was the designer of the original building. His history with the University of California had begun in 1957 when his firm was asked by the UC Regents to find an appropriate site for a new campus in the southernmost part of the state. As he wrote, 
Among the criteria used to evaluate the sites were a sense of place and the spirit of nobility. Later, in 1965, when his firm was commissioned to design the main library for that campus location, he was asked to create something that was to be more than a building. It was to underline the center of the campus forever. Pereira's firm, also the creators of the university's long-range development plan, acknowledged that the building would be built in phases. The sphere was chosen as the basic form for Central Library. And remember, I'm using many of Pereira's words. Sphere might not be the first word you think of when you look at our library. But it is a five-level spheroid shape raised 30 feet above a plaza level with two operational areas on the main floor and the basement level. Originally to be constructed largely from steel, budgetary constraints led to the use of reinforced concrete. The all-concrete system provided for a new design vocabulary, the diagonal concrete arms with which we're so familiar. At the 1971 dedication ceremony, Pereira acknowledged his triumphant structure. If it appears to some that the design of this library building conveys the idea that powerful and permanent hands are holding aloft knowledge itself and offering to future generations wisdom and hope with conviction, I can only say in all humility that is what we meant to do as a dividend of spirit beyond the library's practical capacity as a functional building. And in future years, I would like it to be said about the authorship of this building, as Emerson said it, he builded better than he knew. Within a few years of Central Library's dramatic opening in 1970, it was considered too small. Student enrollment had more than doubled, Library staff numbers had increased, and the collections had grown so quickly that more than 300,000 volumes had to be stored off-site. The original intention had been to do an addition to the building in 1976, and Pereira had included such in his original plans. But an expansion of the building wasn't funded until 1990, and the Pereira plan an addition cascading down into the canyon to the north of this building was not to be implemented. Gunnar Burkertz, an internationally renowned architect whose office was in Michigan, was selected as the designer of the addition, with the San Diego firm of BSHA under the leadership of Gordon Carrier, a former student of Burkertz, as the executive architects. The expansion was to double the size of the library's usable space. Burkert's original design proposed building part of the addition above ground, capturing space from the largely unused forum level. The campus community, however, did not find such interference with their landmark building acceptable. Burkert's second accepted design was the brilliant light canyon that forms a U-shape around the west, south, and east sides of the Pereira building, almost all below the level of the forum. Groundbreaking took place in March of 1990 when Burkertz himself noted, I think it was the first time an architect was invited to San Diego and then asked to be invisible. Of course, what is visible are the jagged above-ground protrusions, 
the splendid two-story skylights that dot the perimeter of the addition, allowing light into the first and second floors, while the addition's glass curtain wall faces and reflects the landmark tower structure of the original building. In addition to the grand infusion of light, Burkert's design allowed the library's service point, points to return to Pereira's original, more functional design. The service points, which had been spread across most floors of the tower over the years, were brought back together on the main floor, achieving a less siloed effect among different units. And since the addition had opened in 1992, the libraries continued to undergo various interior renovations and transformations. The creation and then deconstruction of the arts library on the first floor, the addition of a much-needed third public elevator, the incorporation of the Teaching and Learning Center, as well as all other branch libraries into Geisel, the redoing of the eighth floor into a quiet space for student studying, the addition of Audrey's Cafe on the main floor, to mention just a few, few of the transformations. The exterior, too, has been enhanced by three of the Stewart Collection's site-specific sculptures and the graceful landscaping plan created by the San Diego firm of Wimmer Yamada. All of these changes, and all of the changes to come, demonstrates the libraries adapting to the evolving needs of its campus and community users. While Pereira's original iconic structure remains, boldly conveying the idea of the power and permanency of the knowledge contained inside it. Let me now welcome tonight's panelists, Carolyn Oshetel, Teddy Cruz, and Kevin DeFritas. And I want to thank you all for joining us for this special event. And um, Caroline, maybe we'll start with you if you just would introduce yourself and tell us what your connection to this building is. Sure, that sounds great. Thanks, Linda, and I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm Caroline Ashatel. I'm a designer at an architecture and urban design office called Studio Gang, uh, based in Chicago. Uh, but I grew up in San Diego, it was so formative for me. I've always been drawn to the way that the built environment influences our behavior. Um, and how it can be designed to create better social relationships. So growing up in California, I thought it was such a unique place because our habits are shaped by cars and by highways, but we also have such an incredible civic asset in all of our public beaches, our coast. And of course, as Teddy puts it, the border creates such a rich binational region. Um, so throughout college and also graduate school, my work and my interests have had a common thread, which is how well-designed, inclusive public space can make people's lives better every day and how it can shape their attitudes and their ideas. Uh, so right now at Studio Gang, I work on a large project in Memphis called Tom Lee Park, and it's really exciting. It's over a mile of waterfront along the Mississippi River, just west of downtown Memphis. Uh, we're transforming a flat field into a world-class park with amenities and landmarks where people come from across the city to connect with the river and with each other. So when I was in architecture school, I'd go back home over breaks and I would start to want to understand and uh, really learn about San Diego's iconic buildings in a serious way. So of course the Salk, of course buildings by Irving Gill, but also the Geisel. And I first actually encountered the Geisel through my high school art class. So I used to take glass blowing and aluminum casting at the Craft Center, which was such an incredible place. Rest in peace, Craft Center. Uh, but then after that, I would stay at the Geisel and spend time there while waiting for my parents to pick me up. So it was just a 
a public place, I think, that is not affiliated with a place that you have to spend money, but rather like a community room in a way that's really unique to San Diego. So all that to say, I ended up doing research about the building in graduate school to learn more about the person who made it. I studied the report that Pereira wrote about the Geisel, which you so eloquently referenced, Linda, and then also wrote a bit about his approach to master planning, which I think was really ahead of its time. So it's such an inspiring building. I really still feel a connection to it, even now that I'm not in San Diego, and I'm excited to be here to talk about it with you guys today. Teddy? Uh, yes, Linda, thank you so much for inviting to be part of this conversation. It's a very uh, meaningful moment. Uh, I'm a professor in public culture and urbanization in the visual arts department and director of urban research uh, at the Center on Global Justice, where I co-direct the UCSD Community Stations Project with political science professor Fona Foreman. Um, the UCSD Community Stations uh, is a network of field stations located in underrepresented neighborhoods on both sides of the San Diego-Tijuana border, where teaching and research is conducted collaboratively between UCSD researchers and students and community leaders. Um, they are public spaces for, uh, that educate. Uh, let's imagine them as a distributed university where knowledge is constructed with communities. Um, we have been interested, in fact, on the idea that public space uh, must be a site for building citizenship through cultural mobilization. Um, we feel that this is the role that a public university like UCSD must play in its own region to mobilize the specialized knowledge and research developed in campus in order to engage the critical issues that affect the communities that surround it. Uh, this might sound strange, but these are some of the thoughts that come to mind when I walk uh, by the Geyser Library on my way to teach. Um, I often think uh, uh, that the iconic presence uh, of this magnificent and beautiful, beautiful building represents more than excellence in design and aesthetics. I truly feel that this represents the institutional commitment to public thinking. At a time when we have seen the consequences of our withdrawal from public investment and social commitments, the UCSD library remains a symbol of a civic imagination. Uh, this is something that I would love to expand further uh, as our conversation unfolds. Thank you, Teddy. Kevin? Yeah, it's such an honor to be a part of this celebration of the 50th anniversary of Geisel. In fact, I'm only three years older than this building and the building has uh, aged much better. Um, I'm a local San Diegan. Um, like Caroline, I grew up here and I remember driving by this building countless number of times um, and didn't have my first interaction with it till I was in high school. There was a book that I needed for a report that I was, I was doing and it was in part of the collection here. And I remember coming down to visit it. And my, my first impression at UCSD and in La Jolla in general was this place is really gray. The sky was gray, the buildings were gray. And I remember just being intimidated by this structure. Um, kind of sneaking in through the front door thinking, oh, a high schooler doesn't even belong in this building and going up to the seventh floor and finding the book that I was looking for and, and then not even looking at it, um, uh, just admiring the view and being absolutely blown away um, by this, the views and how extraordinary it was for a library. Uh, it was all glass and uh, books don't like windows and, and lots of natural light, um, direct natural light. And so it was, it was revelatory. Um, so fast forward, um, I went off, uh, to learn the craft of architecture, um, and start on that journey. And I established my own practice here in San Diego, Kevin DeFreitas Architects. 
And I had an incredible opportunity from the campus architect at the time, Boone Hellman. And he asked me if I would do a quick study to reimagine um, the original library and campus, Galbraith Hall. And that's really how I got to know Geisel was through Galbraith. And John Galbraith, uh, the second chancellor uh, at UCSD, was a huge proponent of the library. He staked his, his professional career on, on this. And as UCSD was set up like the Oxford with multiple colleges, he believed that a great university could only be great if it had a great library. And he became the champion for that cause and eventually um, led to the creation of, of Geisel. And uh, so I felt like I got to know the building actually through the back door and through, through John Galbraith and his interactions and, and the value that he placed on um, the library as not only the intellectual heart, but the symbolic heart of the campus. And that was something he felt incredibly strongly about, bringing people together uh, for conversations, knowledge, and really using that to propel one forward. So uh, fast forward a few years, uh, having the opportunity to work on some really terrific projects on campus. The new campus architect, uh, Joel King, along with Eric Mitchell, entrusted the renovation, um, the latest evolution of this structure, um, to serve the students going forward with a new service delivery model and reimagining the entry and um, some of the prime um, spaces that uh, freshmen use as part of their orientation and really trying to uh, strip away um, some of the remodels over the, over the years and, and put the entrance uh, sequence back to um, what Pereira originally envisioned, and then working on a new service model that's really, really exciting. And we can probably talk about that later, um, but it's an honor. I would have been happy just to have remodeled the bathrooms in this building, so to, to get to touch it in any meaningful way is really, really powerful. And my last connection... Uh, to San Diego, to UCSD, and to to, to Geisel, and, and especially Pereira, is that uh, we're, we're we both share Portuguese heritage, and I think the last uh, famous Portuguese people were Ferdinand and Isabella. So um, it's pretty cool to to touch uh, Pereira in, in in this way as uh, a still uh, emerging uh, architect. It is. It's amazing how he still is with us through this building and so present. Um, so let me just start with um, a first question. Uh, maybe, Caroline, you want to start, and then the others could um, chime in if you like. We're celebrating this year the library's 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the building. Will folks be celebrating Pereira's iconic structure 50 years from now, and why? Yeah, Linda, I mean, I definitely think so. I think that question is so layered, but I think a reason why people will still be celebrating it is it's not only monumental in terms of a building that's an object that you see in the landscape, and especially in San Diego, I think um, sometimes materials are so ephemeral, like that building is so iconic, and almost it's it's heavy in a way, but it also has this lightness that draws you to the public area around, and I think he was very, very prescient, not in terms of just citing a a piece of architecture that wanted to be looked at, but also looking to how the site interacted with the building and how the building should be placed in its ecological setting and how buildings have to grow and change over the years. So I think that flexibility allows people to continue, as Kevin was saying with the renovation, 
to love the building. It's ahead of its time. It allows the land to determine what kind of development can take place in the future. But it's also sited in such a a unique place on that canyon ridge that it's the heart of campus. So I think, I mean, I remember in high school seeing people congregate around it. And even now, as I go back, I think it's still kind of like the pulse of the campus and that, I don't know, I think that kind of sighting of the building and the combination with the materials and just all the unique study spaces make it so flexible in a way that will continue to be relevant in years to come. Yes, it, I can add, I mean, I think that Caroline just said it, said it all. I think that no wonder the building is characterized uh, or is an emblematic sort of force of brutalism, in a sense, that's the way it has been interpreted uh, uh, in the context of architectural history. And obviously, the, the amazing robustness of materiality, um, the expressive ge- geometric you know, form, uh, the, ex- the exposed materials and systems, I mean, all of that makes the building incredibly timeless in a sense. Uh, I'm saying this also because in, in Southern California, usually the investment on, on material quality is often absent uh, from public infrastructure, but also in terms of the way we build often with, very, with lighter materials. So I think that, you know, often when I came to the United States for the first time as an immigrant, you know, I'm looking at this incredible, huge infrastructure made of freeways. Uh, I said, my God, if someday everything disappears, the only thing that will remain are these freeways. And possibly then we have moved uh, beyond cars and they will have to be retaken by nature or something. But all I'm saying is that we must invest in permanency and and the commitment of um, investment in architecture and public infrastructure and public buildings that are well-built, well-designed. But this is an incredible example of that commitment. Um, and, and, and it's timeless. I mean, I think that uh, not only we understand its meaning now throughout history, uh, so hopefully we will preserve it as such, but I think itself as a building um, and, and what it signifies, again, in, within the culture that often veers away from, as I said earlier, from, from commit- commitments to, to, to civic um, uh, symbols or civic imagination. I think this, this will forever uh, emblematize that. So 150 years from now, hopefully <laughs> libraries will stay, still remain alive with, yes. and people will want to still open a book and touch, touch the books with their own hands. And I think that this, this building, uh, that sense of tactile materiality uh, and uh, a, a sort of emotional content, I think will, is timeless. It will be there. It will be there. Linda, I think your question is really quite amazing because I think the next 50 years are really it, the brightest for the library. I think these first 50 were a warm-up. Um, it was it was really a traditional structure in that it was housing book stacks. And what Eric and his team here at the library now are really envisioning how to integrate technology, how students um, learn differently, the access to information, and and really it's becoming about placemaking. And as the the book stacks are being replaced by study spaces and GIS labs and maker spaces and all sorts of new opportunities. This next phase is not its final phase either. And I think that's what makes a building timeless. And, and the word that Tedding and uh, Caroline both used was iconic is that it's able to evolve. And that's, that's the power of this building. I think when Pereira envisioned it, he was very much influenced by post-war California culture, cars, jazz, cocktails, um, incredible unbridled enthusiasm and optimism mm-hmm. and and also this connection to Hollywood and, and science fiction and he was very much aware of uh, Ray Bradbury who who typed out uh, Fahrenheit 451 in the on a rented typewriter in UCLA's uh, library 
and this whole idea of, of the future and aspiration. And I think that as he melded that vision with this upstart university, um, he, was, he was not looking towards the past. And uh, libraries very much are about kind of stayed, um, this, this idea you can almost smell the books and you can imagine the, the leather patches on the tweed coats. And, um, and, that, and that's not what he was looking for at all. He was looking towards the future along with Ravel and Monk and these extraordinary characters that saw the future um, with great excitement. And, and they were ready to understand it and tackle it and discover it. So this building was a, about looking towards the future and the future is here now, 50 years later, but the future is still 50 years out in front of us. And I think that's the power of this building is it's as relevant today as it was when, when the students first walked through those doors 50 years ago. I know. It's so amazing, too, that this building did capture. It's the perfect building and library for all of the sort of founding concepts of this university, which, you know, just... It's going to start at the top and build out. And for a building this size and with this material, too, to be able to continue to transform the interior as the, the other part of the library evolves, I think, is just a testament to, to his vision. And it's the most iconic building, not only on campus, it became the official logo of the university, but I would say in Southern California, but even in the UC system, maybe the only other building that's nearly as recognizable is the Campanile um, at Berkeley, yes. but everybody knows this building and and it's uh, it screams San Diego, it screams UCSD, and it screams, you know, uh, we're here and, and come check us out. And, and it's, <laughs> it, it's dynamic. And really what you said is it's audacious. This building is audacious and it's still that way. And it's future... I think is, is, is sealed because of that. I think that's definitely true. And I think what Teddy said, especially about the building, in a way it's, it's so, it's such an anomaly. It is audacious, but it's also so linked to the construction and the ethos of the freeway for better or worse. I remember reading um, an early AIA review about it that came out that called it a concrete flower and it almost looks like a freeway clover. And even just in the collaboration of how Pereira gestated the building, he was working with engineers, he was working with Bechtel, who built bridges and dams and freeways to test mock-ups on site. So that spirit of collaboration kind of across discipline, it's not a binary between an architect and an engineer, but rather like the meeting of the minds to get the best of both. It made something that was really innovative at the time, but then also, yeah, in a weird way, it it's once... It's like this Brazil backdrop, a uh, futuristic building, but then it's also so San Diego. You, you know, in that sense, it really, again, epitomizes the, the, the spirit of modernism. In that sense, this sort of aspiration to a future. Obviously, it's very utopian. We also understand that utopias that are not grounded in reality always become dystopian uh, dreams. But part of what is so beautiful about this is that it speaks of this uh, almost um, amazing faith uh, on humanity and, and the spirit of humanity and its uh, uh, possibility for emancipation, emancipation through knowledge and commitments to each other uh, as a society. And I'm, in that sense, I'm thinking of its utopian uh, role. Um, often when I think of the building in relationship to brutalism, I also think of it, and often this has not been mentioned that much, but 
how it relates to a, a movement that for me is very important, a post-war Japanese movement in architecture called metabolism, uh, where through which, in a way, architectural form uh, becomes analogous to organic uh, biological growth. So I'm thinking of this future that is beginning to anticipate transformation uh, and it's sort of hybridizing with nature and ecology. Um, so many of those meta- uh, metabolist buildings of uh, the post-war years were very utopian, um, thinking of themselves as megastructures that floated above the city and above the ocean, in fact, where units become systems uh, and so on, and that grow through modular and mo- molecular aggregation. I'm thinking of Moshe Safdi's Habitat 67, the housing project that grows uh, 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 seemingly organically. Uh, so anyway, there is something about that uh, possibility. I'm thinking that uh, Walter Monk would have loved, uh, maybe he had conversations uh, uh, with Pereira, but uh, in, in this relation, the building architecture urbanization in relationship now to climate uh, and the way we grow. And how do we anticipate growth? Finally, one some, uh, issue that for me is very beautif- uh, beautiful to sort of meditate in terms of the building is it's what Carolyn mentioned, is, is light but also permanent at the same time. I mean, which... All, like Octavio Paz, the poet, always said to poetry is about, you know, bringing opposites, something that is light can be permanent. Uh, so it's a very poetic in that way. Uh, what I mean is that the building uh, occupies uh, not that much footprint. So it, it spreads out. It's light as, as, a, as a tree and its roots on the ground, but then it spreads outward as a foliage uh, uh, to become both permanent and ephemeral. So I think that that, that's what is so fantastic about the building. It contains all of those issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so true. Like also, br- brutalism is, it, it often has a checkered history. If you, if you consider buildings that are not loved in the brutalist canon, like if you look at Boston City Hall, it's a hard mix because brutalism, the details have to be so considered because it can be brutal yet delicate, but it's all down to the details. And that's when these brutalist buildings become a social connector. And similar to metabolism, I think that's a great example, especially when um, Pereira was kind of thinking about the expansion and he wanted, all, as you said, Lynn, in the introduction, all of these like little kind of mini buildings to cascade down the hillside in a way that is very metabolist. It's very organic. But then I also sometimes even think of Lena Bobardi and some of her work that combined glass and concrete yet still preserved public space. And she was working at the same time as Pereira. So there was definitely, I think, a a kind of canon around the world that was emerging. But with again, with brutalism, I think it's all in the details, how, how those buildings are preserved. And as you said, whether we still like them or revile them in 50 or 100 years. Well, what I think, and, and we're just going to spend the whole panel on your first question here, Linda. That's okay. It hopefully has led to many other things. But as as the building evolves and, and the campaign that, that's methodically underway now, uh, for example, eliminating the stacks up on the eighth floor and turning that into a quiet study space and creating more space uh, for students to meet and study, and then turning the, the basement level into the teaching learning commons for uh, the writing center and, and math tutoring, and then... When I was reintroduced to this building as part of this project doing my research, I had never seen so many chairs before in my life in one space. And there's rocking chairs, there's club chairs, there's couches, there's standing chairs, there's even desks over uh, a couple of treadmills. There's every opportunity here to come um, and stay and spend some time. The addition of Audrey's Cafe, again, um, something when, when I came that first time in high school, it was dead quiet. You, you were very aware of noise and making any, and I just wanted to sneak in and sneak out. 
thinking that I was an interloper there. And now there's so much activity and energy. You come here during 10th week, it's you can't even get in on the entry, entry bridge. It's so packed out. And it's really taken on this dynamic life that's so exciting. And so I think as it's evolving functionally, it also evolves in terms of meaning. And I think that's what also makes buildings very powerful um, culturally. When Pereira designed the building, he envisioned it um, as putting your palms together and the fingers, these structural fingers, he called them bents. There were 16, yeah. four on the, the four cardinal orientations. And as if it was kind of powerfully holding up or cradling knowledge. What's interesting is you fast forward to Alexis Smith's piece, uh, Snake Path, that 516 foot Stuart Collection sculpture piece that's on the ground that wraps around and, and inclusion in the work of Milton's uh, Paradise Lost. It really changes the meaning completely to this idea of the tree of knowledge. And, and, and so I think that makes this building so important. Geisel allows people to bring um, a lot to this building and it creates meaning and place um, as they have memories and experiences in it. So I think that's why, again, the next 50 years is really, really it's teenage years. It's, it's just going to do some really wildly exciting stuff. <laughs> Well, and I think in addition to Alexis Smith's piece, even John Baldessari's piece on the front of the library, both of those pieces reference sort of knowledge um, and what what someone brings to the library and then what someone takes away from the library also out back out into the community. But Teddy, could you talk a little bit more about the shaping of ideas and the imagination and how the building sort of is in the public imagination and how the building can help be a more public sort of enterprise in a way? You know, this is obviously the perennial effort of our campus and, and the university yeah. really as a higher learning institution is how do we connect more directly to the communities that surround it, as I mentioned earlier, and this interface really with the city at large we are going to be connected very soon by trolley, yes, by and hopefully trolley. that will be one incredible asset to enable the community to come in, but also ourselves to go out. And that interface, I think, is what I was mentioning earlier about, about the community stations uh, producing, how to link the specialized knowledge of the university with the creative knowledges of uh, communities, putting research at the service, again, of transforming our institutions, uh, of urban planning, and so on. So I think it's, it's essential. Um, and, and that is really a larger question also within the campus. I think that the, the history of the campus has been really rich and really beautiful. I mean, emblematized in very different epochs, different, different sensibilities towards what buildings mean in the context of a city or what public space ultimately means. Revel Plaza, when they, in the 60s, you know, uh, when the universities emerging, uh, shows a, a sensibility towards a public space being the armature that organizes everything, right? So buildings are really organized around the, the, the public space. At some point, the planning uh, sensibilities uh, change in the history of UCSD, and then maybe we begin to treat buildings more as iconic mm -hmm. uh, follies in the forest. Well, let's put it that way. Like the library emblematizes that. Um, and, and then now, uh, I think we're beginning to come back, I think, in the campus to the idea of restitching all these buildings uh, more cohesively through public, the public realm, articulating walkways, plazas, the library walk, that beautiful project by Peter Walker, the landscape architect, yeah. really produces this amazing axis 
that not only frames the library so beautifully, but enables students to transform the public realm informally through a variety of events. And, and, and as you see in the uh, uh, Price Center, the Student Center, the Student Union, all that area, which is downtown for our campus, uh, has begun to be articulated through arcades, through farmers markets, through amphitheaters that are open to the public realm. So, yes, the, the, the campus becomes almost a, the leader, really, in UCSD primarily, not only to commit to excellent architecture and planning, uh, through which the city at large in San Diego could learn. You know, and so I think that the campuses and the university planning really become laboratories for rethinking the best models of inclusive uh, urbanization. That's great. I know when I first came to this campus in 1983, even though it was called Central University Library, it was did not seem very central because, of course, none of the buildings you've just mentioned were in existence, and the library was sort of off at the north end of the campus, away from any kind of campus life. And I think what you're talking about and referencing also is as the campus has developed and the library actually has become more the, as it was supposed to be, the geometric center of the campus. You know, that has finally happened. Oh, Linda, can I just, I'm sorry, Carolyn, Kevin, can I just say one more thing about that? Yes. I mean, yes. if you look at a plan of the entire campus, it's almost like the hinge, the, the, the pivot, the, everything, you know, is, moves around it. But what sometimes people do not uh, realize, and you look at it, I would invite anybody w watching this to look at a campus plan, is that the, the library not, not only is the epicenter of campus, but is really the center of this uh, uh, reserved ecological zone. Yes. This, this belt, yeah. or, or, or this 112-acre belt of eucalyptus trees, is a park grove, as they call it. And, and really, uh, the, the library is at the highest point of that promontory. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, this relationship of buildings uh, symbolizes civic imagination, but also a more ecologically grounded you know, idea of planning. I think this is a, a, there's a beautiful concept there that maybe, I don't know if it was intended then, but when you look at a map of the green belt, this yes. uh, uh, ecologically, yeah. uh, you know, preserved area and the library right at the center in the highest point really brings together knowledge and ecology in such beautiful ways. It's so interesting to hear you guys talk about it. And I think also just like Teddy, you're tracking that evolution over time. The only thing it makes me wonder is that if Pereira was thinking about that, because then later when he was working with Ian McHarg, of course, who wrote Design with Nature, the esteemed landscape architect, that they're thinking about ideas of hydrology and climate and soil and how that dictates where you're supposed to site a building, um, especially just in comparison to the Salk, which has those amazing views. It's interesting, Teddy, to hear you talk about the libraries at center of campus, because in a way, this library seems more more outwardly focused than a library that Khan did, the Exeter Library, where it's all about the interior and the atrium. And this library is, there's great interior spaces as well, as Kevin said, but it's also so outwardly focused and sited in that Canyon Ridge and kind of ready to engage with the ecology. So it's interesting just to hear, Linda, you're someone who uses the building every day to think about how it's just that center of campus and just sited in the landscape. Yes. And also, I think, I, I'm curious also, because as you all know, um, Pereira's plan for the addition that didn't happen, which was to be stepped down in that canyon behind the library, but now it is an ecological preserve, which is why they decided not to go ahead and build in it. But Kevin, you're going to change a portion of the interior of the library now. Um, 
How hard has that been, or has Pereira's in, interior um, offered certain problems, like too much concrete, maybe? You can never have enough concrete. <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, the beauty of his building was he had a central core, like a tree. Mm -hmm. um, that was a trunk. And then there's peripheral columns um, that spanned around that. And I, and I know that your uh, colleague, Tammy Deary, uh, hated those columns uh, because they were always landing in inopportune places. <laughs> but uh, we've actually found a way to work with them. And the new model um, that Eric and his, his team are envisioning is, is really quite exciting. And I think, again, it, it talks to this evolution. The traditional model is that you have a transactional counter. Uh, somebody walks in, they're separated by the person helping them by three feet. You're trying to figure out where you need to go or what you need to find. And uh, it's, it's not very engaging. Um, so the model that they're moving towards right now is something more similar to an Apple store, maybe as a metaphor, where it's a series of large work tables out in space. And that the faculty and staff come out and join the students or uh, the users side by side, shoulder to shoulder, rather than separated by this counter. And I think that's, that's psychological as, as well as literally means something different to those being helped. It's much more inclusive. It's much more like, let's do this together. And uh, I think it makes it much easier um, uh, to, for students to engage and, and faculty to engage with this building. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a huge um, uh, thrust of the, the remodel. I think another one ties into a greater uh, university mission that Chancellor Kosla has spoken about um, repeatedly. And he said, I really want the library and I want UCSD to be one of the top five places that someone would visit when they come to San Diego if they hadn't been here before. Mission Beach, Balboa Park, maybe the Hotel Dell, the zoo or SeaWorld and UCSD. And Teddy mentioned it earlier with the trolley coming here now. So it uh -huh. makes it easier for, to get here on public transportation. Um, but I think it also speaks to really the, the narrative of UCSD and the narrative of Pereira are actually very much aligned. Everybody um, knows Pereira's work and nobody knows who he is. And, and if you ask anyone out on the street in San Diego, you say, um, name, name a building in San Francisco that's not the Golden Gate Bridge, and they're going to say... The Transamerica Building. Yes, um, <laughs> that's Pereira. And if you say, have you ever flown out of LAX? What's your impression? And they talk about the theme building, the one that looks like a UFO kind of suspended right, uh, right. in a spider's web. That's also Pereira. And he also did the Disney Hotel, which uh, millions of Americans had stayed in. And, and then, of course, in San Diego, uh, Guy's a library. Um, in addition to planning UC Santa Barbara and UC Irvine and the whole city of Irvine, Pepperdine, um, okay. he was incredibly prolific. LACMA up in LA, which is, was just uh, torn down recently. Um, uh, but no one knows who he is like they did a, a, a Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, even though he's quite flamboyant, he used to show up to meetings in his Rolls Royce and very much um, came from that Hollywood um, background. Mm -hmm. In fact, he won the, the equivalent of an EGOT for, for designers. Um, he was a fellow in the American Institute of Architect, and he uh, was one of just a handful of architects to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. And he also won an Academy Award for special effects and set design <laughs> for Reap the Wild Winds. So, you know, he's up there with John Legend and all, uh, all those um, amazing people that have, have been recognized cross-discipline. But 
But as a character, really, no one knows who he is and how that translates to the narrative of UCSD, I think, relates back to my story of being a high schooler. If you didn't have a reason to be on UCSD's campus, you didn't come here. Um, there was very much a separation, I think, physically because of the ocean to the west, the five to the east, um, Serrano Mesa and, and all the, the industrial to the north and, and, and just kind of touches the community to the south. And so Chancellor Kosla is really trying to change that mentality. And I think Eric and his staff also mm -hmm. are envisioning how the library can reach um, other constituencies between academics, students, faculty, and staff, but actually the community. And they're doing that um, by including a formal gallery, um, which we're still trying to fund. There's the, the rotating collection of Geisel's work. Uh, his archives are stored here. And uh, there's faculty and, and student work that's exhibited throughout the, the library as well. So as Chancellor uh, Kosla is trying to, to really engage the community, not only San Diego, but at large saying, come visit us um, through uh, innovative music program and dance programs and all that. Um, the library is trying to do the same um, by encouraging people to come and check out the art collection, uh, special collections and things like that. So it, it goes back to this deeper idea of engagement um, not just with the traditional constituencies of an academic library, but the community at large. And I think that's a really, really seismic shift um, that UCSD is embarking on um, with the community. I mm -hmm. think it's this project is the first step um, as the, the rest of the library um, will become renovated over the years in subsequent phases. Kevin, I think that's really interesting. I mean, one thing I sometimes wonder about Pereira, especially like with Frank Lloyd Wright, like thinking about the idea of the architect and like the lone figure is almost in a way, I mean, Pereira might've been opposite to Frank Lloyd Wright in that he was so good at like listening and research in a way that now is really revered. And now the wave of the future for architects is all about collaboration and it's not one lone figure. And I think he was ahead of his time that way, just doing research about the building. It was amazing to see how many other university libraries he looked at. Like he looked at the tower model of the Notre Dame library. He looked at the Beinecke, of course, and he just went all over the country on like a listening tour that I think Previously, the idea you have about architects like Khan is that they know everything and they're imposing their top down formal vision. And this building is so uniquely formal, but it also serves, like you said, to kind of meet all of these different user needs in a way that still makes it relevant. But then sometimes I wonder if like, yeah, you're right now he's forgotten. Maybe it's because he was so good that he receded into the background because he just kind of compiled everyone's thoughts and needs. And then I don't know if he faded away, but he's he's definitely not the same kind of public figure as Frank Lloyd Wright was. One of the things you mentioned about Pereira, Kevin, and his um, work in the film industry and sci-fi too, originally, and when by the 80s anyway, this building um, and designed such was surrounded very closely by tons of eucalyptus trees so that when you approached it, it was somewhat screened and softened, if you will, by the trees and not meant to be seen sort of the way it is now as this, you know, boldly in your face building. Um, and I'm wondering how the landscaping and um, has, has changed, obviously, but the building now to me seems much more theatrical and Hollywoodish in a way that it should be sort of a scene, you know, the setting for some 
I don't know, alien or dramatic <laughs> sort of happening, um, perhaps on that forum level. But Can I yes, mention something please. about that? Maybe yeah. uh, It's a wonderful question because often when we look at buildings as objects and we want to preserve them, uh, uh, important buildings obviously like this one, but we often don't think about how the immediate context was important to those buildings when they were originally designed. This is what happened with the Salk Institute. Uh, there was a huge yeah. up uproar uh, in the architectural community when they did the addition because they destroyed the, the eucalyptus grove that was in front of it. That was an essential element to transition from the car into the plaza, moving through the forest, through the trails, and then entering into this amazingly rational and poetic space at the same time. Similarly, I think what you are saying with the li library, I, I, I think that is interesting to understand itself through the context uh, and the landscape. I think that relationship of building landscapes, uh, a landscape itself and ecology is something that has finally come back to the conversation. And as Carolyn was saying, and uh, Kevin alluded at that as well, is that in the time of Pereira, I think there was a more synergistic a sort of coalition of thinkers, philosophers, architects, ecologists, uh, landscape architects really uh, discussing the issues, understanding certain uh, sort of um, sensibilities and approaches to this. And I think that that's the conversation that hopefully we're getting back, I think, to, to engage in something that places buildings less as self-referential objects and more really belonging to a larger social context and larger ecological context. I just want to say something about the, the, the programmatic thing just very quickly because Kevin alluded beyond the fact that uh, Pereira was an incredibly eccentric figure. Maybe what you are saying, Kevin, is that there should be a place of exhibition to finally be, you know, give justice to his, his trajectory inside the library so many students can be more familiar. But what, what, what you were also alluding is that, and I mentioned earlier that I love books, I want to touch them, right? I, I cannot read the paper on, on, on my tablet. I have to really touch it. And I, I, I maybe might have sounded hugely conservative when it comes to that. I truly believe that that connection is important. But obviously, that's not to deny that in the future, informational technologies, other types of interfaces have to happen. It opens the question of what is the library in the 21st century and beyond, and how this building really begins flex, to be flexible, a flexible infrastructure to accommodate other uh, programmatic arrangements, let's put it that way, that makes it really into a public space that is in constant construction. Yes. Uh, what does that look like is something that we must open up as a conversation. Um, I love the Seattle Library, for example, uh, that Rem Cole has designed, where he challenged us to think, what is the library in the 21st century? Why do the books have to be in a storage hidden? Why can't we elevate them to be what organizes circulation and public interface? Many ideas that, programmatically speaking, can begin to push the library to really reinvent itself as a public space for the larger city. And, and you asked the question, you know, is it hard to, to reimagine it? And my, my answer, the, the long answer, which I never answered, I'm answering now, is, is no. I mean, the structure is on the center and the perimeter, and it, it's kind of wide open in, in the middle and allows for these uh, reconfigurations. And so I think that's, that speaks to his foresight, um, that it can go from something closed to something more open. Um, and I imagine that um, this this project that we're doing now will probably be completely reimagined in the next 30 years. Um, when we started this project, um, the gate counts for about 2.3 to 2.5 million annually. But with the addition of two new colleges coming on um, uh -huh. and the growth of the enrollment and 
Uh, Pre-COVID, the densification of dorms, what were doubles and triples, were becoming triples and quads. And the way to do that was to take out the desks. So it's driving more students to, to study spaces like Geisel. And so the projection is that they'll hit 3 million um, annual visitors very, very quickly. And I think that trajectories will continue to go up. So I think that the, the, the building um, will continue to morph and it will continue to change. It is interesting to me that we're sort of, um, the way we're organized internally in the library right now is much more really what Pereira envisioned it um, with the service points here on the main floor where in between, you know, the original building and the addition, the service points got spread throughout the library and made it very difficult for users because you always had, you know, to go to a different service point depending on what format you were using, right? So I think we're sort of back at the beginning in a way as we start off in a whole new direction. It's very interesting to hear you, Kevin, as someone who's redesigning the building, then also Linda as someone who like uses it every day to talk about how flexible it is because I think sometimes about brutalist buildings like maybe Rudolph Hall at Yale that's just like such a yeah. whole work of art both on the inside and the outside. And I remember going to the Geisel and being like, oh, it's it's very Spartan inside and it's not like as designed as I would have imagined after seeing these like very wholly outfitted interior and exterior spaces at other university libraries. But in this case, it almost seems like an asset. And especially as you're saying, Kevin, during COVID, like that kind of flexibility on the interior allows you to use technology to readapt and be flexible and be nimble, still give students a way to see other people because people need social contact, but allow to do it in a way that's safe and relevant to how we're living right now. I'm, I'm glad to he hear that as well, the, the level of flexibility, you know, I'm cannot avoid linking this conversation or the Pereira's efforts maybe to another uh, strand of, of debate and discussion during the post-war years. Uh, for example, the movement uh, of the Situationist International, whose main architect uh, was Constant, who thought of the city as an open scaffold uh, where the spaces were going to be uh, negotiated through social encounter um, and so on. And so the, the idea that the, the, I've always thought of this, that the library feels like a, like a, like a scaffold, uh, obviously, there is open plan, and so so it allows for uh, maximum flexibility in that sense. So I'm glad to hear that because I, I I hadn't you know thought of that in that way. Linda, you 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 talked about you know how the building is viewed differently now as the the campus has built up around it and the the physical landscape has changed. Let me flip the script to someone who knows this building better than all of us times twelve, having spent thirty <laughs> plus years uh, of your life. In, 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 in this building, do you have a, a favorite memory or a favorite experience coming to this building oh. or using this building that, that when someone asks you what it's like working in that, in, in that, that structure, it, it comes to mind? I don't like questions like this because it's, I always feel it's like being asked who your favorite child is, you know, or which cat do you like better or something. Because, you know, I work in special collections, which is where I've always worked. Um, and everything in here is so, you know, sort of amazing that, you know, that's my favorite part is connecting those materials to the people who come here, particularly the undergraduates. And you all probably don't know this, but we're about to start special collections sort of um, in person 
use again by appointments, one person at a time. And the first student, first appointment is an undergraduate student who has to use a giant manuscript collection, and it's just too much material for us to sort of scan, which is what we've been doing for public service um, over this time. So the best part for me is just making those connections work. But I do want to share one special story for you about a favorite Pereira design. I don't know if any of you know this, but he also designed what I always call Baby Geisel, which was a miniature version of Geisel Library that was to be situated sort of in front of Geisel Library that was to house special collections. <laughs> it obviously did not happen, but we have the plans for it um, in case anyone ever wants to do anything about it. Um, but it's just, you know, he just thought of so many things in so many different ways. The space could go, what would happen in the future. You know, what a remarkable building. I think we're at time tonight, and I just have enjoyed this immensely on a personal level. So Caroline, Teddy, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, the library has been delighted to have you here and to be able to present this program on our fabulous building. Thank you, everybody. That was a fascinating conversation. And I'd uh, like you to join me in welcoming our panelists back uh, tonight for Q&A. And I can see Teddy and Caroline and Kevin and Linda with us. So welcome all. Caroline, let me direct the first question to you. Uh, tonight, we've talked a lot about how buildings are community centers and uh, how, in your words, well-designed buildings improve people's lives. You mentioned you work in this space. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you see community-centered design heading in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for the question. I think it's a, it's a big question, but it's a great question because there's so much exciting work happening right now in architecture and landscape design community around equitable design. And, and not just in terms of how the end product looks, but also the mechanisms and the policies used to achieve it. So this might be a little reductive, but if you say that two of the foremost challenges facing cities and communities today are inequality and climate change, I think there's a lot of compelling public projects that um, are very prescient that kind of read topography to see what was originally there in terms of landscape and then try to design, not in a way that seems like a chore to counter climate change, but in a way that is really fun and joyous and brings communities together. So I'm thinking, for example, of a project in New York City by um, a firm called Scape that is an oyster reef that cleans the harbor. Um, or there's a project in Mexico City by an architect named Loretta Castro-Riguera, and it takes the issue of flooding in Mexico City and it creates a park that acts like a sponge, which creates waterlogged play structures that come alive during flood events. Um, I would say another thing that is really kind of at the forefront of design right now is the idea of the Community Land Trust. So that's a nonprofit corporation that holds land on behalf of communities. It guides affordable housing initiatives, community garden development. It kind of um, manages assets on behalf of communities. So that's another thing that's exciting to me right now. And then I think the last thing that architects are starting to do more, which seems so intuitive, but, but now is being formalized and hopefully we'll see more of in the future is just thinking critically about who you're hearing from when you design and who you're not hearing from. So in our office, we have a youth design leadership program, which brings high school students to the table to give feedback on the design through all um, phases of design, because 
people have high stakes in the projects, but they often don't have a seat at the table. So that's why we're trying to bring in people in a serious way to imbue the design with their voice and their needs. So that's a little long-winded, but just to give you a, a taste. Thank you so much. And, I, and I'll, I'll invite all of our panelists to feel free to join in. And actually, Caroline, your uh, kind of concluding comment around uh, hearing all voices and, and making sure you uh, engage the community really connects to a question, Teddy, that one of our attendees asked of you. They'd love to hear more about your cross-border and community stations initiative. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And if there's a connection back to Caroline's uh, comments, uh, by all means, perfect. Yes, thank you. I, I was going to expand on that a bit. Just first of all, I mean, to to imagine that uh, buildings obviously become not only units, uh, isolated units in the city, but truly begin to stitch together into an infrastructure of inclusion. I think that's fundamental, I think, to imagining uh, buildings gaining or, or activating the, the, the role to, to uh, bring communities, obviously, to participate and to co-produce the city. I think that's fundamental. And that's precisely what my uh, partner, uh, Professor Fona Forman and myself and our collaborators have been trying to advance through the Center on Global Justice in establishing this infrastructure, uh, which we call uh, the community stations. It's an infrastructure of partnerships. What I mean is that sometimes buildings cannot do it on their own, uh, obviously, that we also need to inject into, into those buildings a deliberate design of protocols so that those knowledges can meet, so that the university reaches out and the community comes in. And I think we begin to create circulations of knowledges and resources. I think the relationship of buildings as physical infrastructures, but also our investment in designing social technologies, uh, frameworks by which the, uh, we can really come together. Um, obviously, it's about access to opportunity. I think that when I look at the library, I think that's what opportunity looks like that's what we imagine really when we think of these community stations that we're trying to develop with communities, not just ourselves, but in partnership with communities. So more and more, I think uh, a community-based uh, urbanization of inclusion would have to bring those, those aspects together. And finally, I would say, obviously, the, the public policies that prioritize education, that prioritize investments in public infrastructure, that prioritize in changing consciousness so that we as, uh, understand that the survival of the individual depends on the health of the collective. Meaning, I'm sorry to say this might seem strange, but probably that taxes are not evil, that progressive taxation is essential, it's a civic duty, in fact, to invest in public goods. And libraries are really the, the epicenter, somehow the emblematic force of that. So yes, bringing the community and the university together requires more intentional programming of our university to activate those circulations and choreographing the meeting of those knowledges. Wow, yeah, uh, totally agreed. You know, Kevin, I see you nodding your head. And I know that uh, you, one of the other projects Kevin's working on currently or just completed is a school design project. So, uh, Kevin, I'm wondering if maybe you could reflect on uh, the connect, you know, the work you did in designing the school, and, and how this connects to Caroline and Teddy's comments. I think uh, the school that I did is called the Children's Workshop uh, for an organization called the Institute for Effective Education, and it was uh, a school for mm, children with severe autism. Um, and it was a completely different kind of academic setting. But again, it is all about creating an environment that the students felt comfortable in and safe in, and, and the faculty and staff were, were happy to be. Um, 
And I think that was something that we got a lot of feedback from the parents once the school opened about how excited the students were to be there. And, and the staff said, you know, it's great to show up at work. And so I think, you know, back to what Caroline and, and, and Teddy are saying, it's this idea of inclusivity and bringing people together and placemaking is this theme. And, and certainly, um, as I said in my previous comments, I think that hasn't been maybe a thrust of the university, uh, but I think that's changing. And certainly um, the libraries we talked about being at the heart of that, that function, that purpose um, is important. And I think that the, the work that you're trying to do with your staff um, to invite um, members of the public and the community into the library through the different outreach programs and the art art exhibitions and things like special collections and is, is so important. Um, certainly um, buildings are in the service of people. Otherwise, um, without people, they're sculptures, right? And and uh, Geisel's that unique, that kind of straddles both of those. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a habitable structure. And so um, I think it's, it's important um, as, the culture of the campus is changing and it's growing. Two new colleges are on the way, a lot more students, a lot more activity, but also um, just the realities of COVID. Like, well, this building is trying to bring people together. COVID's trying to keep us apart. And uh, and and you, you've already thought about that um, by introducing the Lib Dispenser. It's a 38, eight foot long uh, automated teller for, for, for books and technology uh, to be dispensed automatically and 24 seven. So I think that, you know, as we develop these plans for this edition, we'll make some adjustments. Um, but ultimately, it is about bringing people together uh, to connect with each other, to connect with ideas, um, and, and to grow and to learn, literally, figuratively, and in all other ways. That's what a great university is, and that's what this building is all about. And uh, uh, Kevin, I'll... Eric. Oh, go ahead, Teddy, please. No, I'm sorry, Eric. It's just that I forgot an essential part of your question, which is really about the border. And, and what Kevin said just reminded me of it. I mean, about connectivity beyond borders, beyond walls. I think that there is an incredible opportunity. I mean, imagine the Geisel Library is barely 30 minutes away from some of the poorest informal settlements in Latin America. And, and this sort of proximity of wealth and poverty is something that should mobilize our spirits, our policies to produce new strategies of interdependence and empathy and I think that that is fundamental to a lot of the, again, the programming that we're trying to develop through the community stations is circulations between Tijuana and San Diego. Imagining Geisel Library becoming a distributed library that transcends the border, it enters into Tijuana with mobile library systems, uh, connecting to the infrastructure of libraries, obviously there too. There are universities there that are amazing. So anyway, yes, this possibility of producing a, a more, I call it a transgressive, a bit a, a educational, uh, collaborative, uh, collaborative models for, for education, I think is important, primarily in our, our own geography, which is really one that is divided and has been, unfortunately, in recent years, polarized uh, and criminalized. I think we need to reach out to the neighbor, to the, to the neighbor and, and, and this is something that UCSD is constantly looking for. Uh, you know, I, I completely agree. And, and Kevin mentioned it earlier, the uh, evolving focus of UC San Diego on the broader San Diego community. Uh, you know, Linda, um, you know really well the work we do in the library around community outreach. I'm thinking of our circuit partnership with all the public libraries in San Diego 
and the many different events that you lead out of Special Collections. I'm wondering if maybe you could reflect for us a little bit on um, how the library at UC San Diego stays connected to our broader community. Well, I think everyone who works here feels that so keenly that that is part of our responsibility, um, not just on the part of the library, but for the university to be out in the community and be connected to as many different communities beyond the campus as we can. And when Kevin and Teddy and Caroline were talking too, I was thinking that another way we do that, of course, is trying to collect materials about those communities. Um, for example, our going out and um, working with the, you know, sort of Chicano community and getting the Committee on Chicano Rights archives and Herman Baca's archives here, um, working on the history of San Diego, which is nothing but neighborhoods and different communities um, that we want reflected in our collections. Um, so that in, it's another way that the library reaches out to the community, brings the community in and sort of sends it back out in different ways through young scholars and young students. I, I know we have uh, just a few more minutes. Maybe I can try to get to two more questions. And so, Caroline, let me let me come back to you a little bit and uh, open the topic of master planning. Um, I think you referenced Prera's work in kind of building master plans. I'm thinking of UC Irvine, um, of, the, um, of Linda's special collection, Baby Geisel out in front. Uh, how has master planning evolved? Is it, is it still a big concept in architecture or, or what does it look like today? Yeah, it's definitely still a big concept in architecture, but and I don't want to make, I mean, I guess uh, in, in the effort of brevity, I'm going to make a big generalization, but I think some of the more interesting movements in master planning now are kind of um, almost what Geisel was doing with, with Ian McHarg in, for example, like Woodland, Texas. So like letting again, like letting the topography guide what happens in a master plan or doing something incrementally, seeing something almost in a metabolist way as like an organic living system where it's, it's almost like, um, like you're writing a code and it's uh, something that's going to build on itself incrementally over time. So it's rather, instead of saying, we're going to start with a master plan that envisions what exactly every single piece is going to be designed to a T in 30 years, like that's that's not possible to have that type of like foresight. Rather, you're giving like parameters or guidelines and then allowing communities to run with it and allowing things to change and grow. Like that's a more um, reasonable model of master planning. And that's what I think some interesting developments are happening in cities. This is one last thought, but just say like, if you want to look in history to an interesting idea of master planning, look at Savannah, Georgia and the way that they planned different uh, neighborhood squares there, because mm -hmm. that was almost like, again, like a computer code where you're saying you're going to have a different neighborhood, you have another square. So it's kind of like a template, which doesn't, it, it gives rules, but it's not <laughs> saying this is going to look exactly this way uh, at this time in 30 years, if that, if that makes sense. Mm. And, and, and what happens in, in a way is that in reality, it belongs to an era which we need to really bring back that is guided by public thinking and public planning. So Savannah and other cities that have been exemplary, maybe a lot of European cities that we admire that developed through committed social democratic values. It was the pl planning agencies that were enlightened public, you know, oriented uh, agencies that organized the city based on the public realm. Then private development came to insert itself. And that's how our campus has been really a, a, a progressive in that sense. It's really understanding itself as a framework of public availabilities, 
of a more relational thinking about city making is not driven by units or privatization. And in that sense, I think is, is, is something that is fundamental. I think planning is, is really about public goods. You know, and uh, Teddy, maybe this, uh, this question comes back to you. Uh, um, one of our attendees asked how UC San Diego is changing its design plans in context of the growth we've seen. That was certainly something that wasn't anticipated uh, 50 years ago, I think, when Geisel was built. Uh, maybe, do you have any insight on this? Well, obviously, you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a huge question for ourselves, for our planners inside the campus. Obviously, there is a lot of critique maybe about the explosion of buildings and a lot of movement around the campus. Uh, uh, but obviously, we are, we are growing. We need to anticipate how we're going to densify. And as we do that, hopefully, it's not just through buildings, but as I was saying earlier, it's through a lot of alternative mixed uses understanding uh, uh, sustainability uh, as a device, uh, community gardens, uh, uh, self-organizing sort of community-based uh, uh, processes. So, 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 so it, would, it would have to reproduce, to what I was saying earlier, a more complex and relational system of inter interdependencies, buildings, public spaces, transportation, linkages to the city, and obviously an environmental dimension that is fundamental today if we are going to be a green campus. Uh, in terms of uh, renewable renewable energy uh, technologies. So again, we will continue hopefully being a leader at UCSZ to present models that can be reproduced in the city at large. Thank you so much. So I think maybe we have time for just one more question. And uh, this is a wonderful one because I don't know the answer to it. Um, uh, it says, our attendee says, this has been a wonderful celebration of Geisel. I completely agree back in the 70s. Was it universally loved and appreciated as it is today, or was there some disapproval uh, for this architecture? So do any of our panelists have a perspective on this? I, I don't really know the answer to the question. I wasn't a student at UCSD. I wasn't smart enough to get in. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know. Linda, what, 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 what well, do you think? And even I wasn't here in the 70s. So um, I don't know. I think because the library in the 70s, um, even through the 80s really was so separate from the rest of the campus. Um, I'm not sure it was even sort of noticed that much um, other than by sort of people who came here to look at it or by people like Caroline and yourselves who were students um, necessarily. I haven't found in all of our archives here, and I've done a lot of work in them, haven't found a lot of sort of outrageous comments. I mean, the outrageous comments generally had to do with the faculty and what they were teaching, not sort of the building that they had their books in. Um, I don't know. The, the building has, be, has sort of grown into its prominence somehow over the years, and now at 50 you know, it's sort of, it's celebrated. I would agree with Linda's comment. If you look at social media, uh, mm -hmm. the most Instagrammable uh, photograph on campus is, is the Geisel entry, <laughs> especially at graduation. <laughs> the students love to sit precariously uh, up above on the uh, forum level with the word Geisel library in front and, and take an iconic picture in their cap and gown. And so I think Linda makes a great point. I think it really has grown and taken on more importance. And I think a lot of that goes back to my anecdote of, of visiting as a high schooler myself personally in the 80s, that it wasn't, didn't have a lot of life. Um, it was a lot of books and you went in and you, you got what you needed and you got out. 
um, but that is certainly morphing um, today. As I said, it is so thrilling to be there during tent week. There is so much energy and um, pent up, uh, maybe it's anxiety, I don't know what it is, but uh, <laughs> that the campus is is buzzing now and it, and, and it has, um, back to your previous question about the growth, uh, that's, that's, and everywhere in San Diego, we have nimbyism where we're trying to keep growth from happening, but on campus, the growth is a great thing. And it, it's bringing vitality. There's an energy. I, as I said before, I, I, I hope that everyone listening to this, if they haven't been on campus recently, visit the, they've added to the Stewart collection, some impressive pieces down on Ravel. Um, Linda's collection is amazing. I was poking around there. Mm -hmm. My wife, my wife is a professor at Point Loma Nazarene. She's a writing professor, and and I found a brochure from a yoga conference in 1916, and it had these incredible photographs <laughs> of 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 the architecture of the mm -hmm. Theosophical Institute, which mm -hmm. became Point Loma Nazarene. And it was this well done block print, hand cut um, cover with these incredible, extraordinary photographs and. You can just get lost in in, in special collections and, and finding all sorts of amazing things about this place. So um, I don't know. I think it, as I said, this is it really is in its teenage years. This building is really coming into its own. It's completely changing. It's so much more dynamic. Again, when I was a kid, you know, food in the library, you you'd get shot, you know, and and now the the cafe is just buzzing. You can get anything you want there, and mm -hmm. I mean, I get a kick walking by those treadmills with the desks on it, and they're always being used. So, um, I I think it's it's mm -hmm. just, you know, I, I think the future the the students are kind of uh, making it their own as they're taking over more of the spaces as as some of the stacks are leaving. Caroline, uh, Kevin, Teddy, Linda, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation tonight. And thank you all for uh, joining us for this really exciting event. Uh, for more information, as always, uh, please visit geisel50.ucsd.edu. Thank you all and have a great evening.